And uh, if you have your Bibles or phone apps, it's 1 John 3 this morning. I love uh, the worship songs today, Enter into Worship. And there's this other famous worship song from the 1980s by Johnny Lee. You might remember it. It's looking for love in all the wrong places, looking for love in too many faces. Remember that one? Great worship song of the 80s. Well, Toby Powers suggests that we look for love in all the wrong places and they leave us temporarily satisfied but permanently empty. Uh, we look to the can or in the can for substances, substance abuse. We look into the, in a career for personal power or success. We look to the crown for governmental power to give us comfort and uh, security. We look in a crowd for approval of others. We look in courtships for relationships, uh, the right partner. We look for more cash for materialism and security. And we look to competition and our hobbies and such for entertainment and, and, and joy and happiness and all that. But people fail to look to the cross. That's the only true source for everlasting uh, peace, everlasting love. Uh, and sometimes we need to give up the good things in order to find the best. And God wants to give us the best in himself and his love. There's, there's another famous song from the 70s. You could sing this with me. They will know we are Christians by our good theology, by our good theology, right? By our love for one another. And John is all about that in 1 John chapter 3, verse 11. For this is the message you heard from the beginning. We should love one another. And the word used throughout 1 John and most of the New Testament is the word agape. You've heard that before. It's God's kind of love. It's an unconditional love, not conditional love based on how others treat us. That says, I will love you if you do this and that and this and that, then I'll love you. Or I will love you until you do this and that, and then I won't love you. I'm going to withhold it. But it's, it's rather an unconditional love. I will love you no matter what, in the same way that God loved us. It's the kind of love that Jesus displayed while on the cross, even toward those who were mocking him. He said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. It's a type of love that the first martyr, Stephen, proclaimed, even as Saul of Tarsus was out there given permission for stoning. Paul, who became Paul the Apostle, he said, God, do not hold this sin against them. It's unconditional, agape love. Unbelievers should scratch their heads and look at believers in Christ and wonder why in the world are they so different from the world? So how can we grow in this kind of agape love that we're commanded to practice? And here's the outline this morning. By remembering that agape love comes only from God. Secondly, agape love rejects hate. Thirdly, agape love sacrifices for others. It's sacrificial. And fourthly, agape love springs from godly motives. So first, agape love comes only from God in verse 11 of chapter 3. For this is the message you heard from the beginning. We should love agape one another. Do not be like Cain who belonged to the evil one and murdered his brother, Abel. And why did he murder him? Because his own actions were evil and his brothers were righteous. We can learn from Genesis and then from Hebrews chapter 11 that Abel, Cain and Abel, the sons of Adam and Eve. Abel 
offered right sacrifices to God, which came from the fat portions of the firstborn of his flock. He offered God and sacrifices the very best that he had. Whereas Abel apparently gathered together some of his leftovers from his field as a man of the field, and he offered God some of his uh, leftovers, if you will, which would have been displeasing to God. Our actions will stem from our beliefs and our thoughts. Apparently, Cain didn't think much of God to offer him such mediocre offerings. Instead, Cain was motivated by his own selfish ambitions, which led to careless worship of God, and then it led to jealousy, envy, hatred, and eventually murder, murdering his own brother. Because his brother's offerings were pleasing to God, he discovered, and his were displeasing. And he got angry about that. Agape love comes from God. And when we fix our minds on God and receive his love, then we'll love one another. If we don't, then we'll be like Cain. Agape love, secondly, it rejects hate. Like Cain, in his attitude toward Abel, We should not be surprised, my brothers and sisters, if the world hates us. As believers, expect that you will be misunderstood and hated. The worldly mindset is held captive to the lies of the enemy and the values, and people of the world cannot understand the truth. They stand in opposition to biblical truth. In the world's thinking, for example, it's offensive It's unloving and it's exclusive to believe that there's only one God and that there's only one Savior that leads to God to eternal life. It sounds very exclusive, very judgmental to the world mindset. And they will hate us for believing that there's only one way to eternal life. For example, so what kind of attitude are we to call to display toward those who consider us the enemy, who hate us? How are we to respond? Well, how we respond will determine the effectiveness of our call to be witnesses on behalf of Christ, even toward those who are living in darkness. We will either display hate back to them because we fight fire with fire, or we will display hope back to them. Verse 14 says, We know that we have passed from death to life, Why? Because we love one another. We're children of the life, eternal life, because we're loving one another with this agape, unconditional love. And love is the primary quality of a person who's walking with the Lord. But like Cain, we're quick to justify our actions, like bickering and factions and division and accusations and slander and retaliation. And we do this, after all, we stand on our principles. We stand on the truth, don't we? They will know that we are Christians by our truth, by our good theology. It is they who deserve to be criticized. They're the ones who are wrong. We must see that they are put in their place in the name of truth. No, that's not what the Bible teaches. Rather, throughout Scripture, we're told by Paul, Peter, Jesus, Romans 12, do not take revenge, my dear friends, but leave room for God's wrath. God has that handled. 
For it is written, it is mine to avenge, I will repay. We don't have to take up his judgment and wrath on behalf of him. In fact, if we do, we get in his way. First Peter, Peter says the same thing. Do not repay evil for evil or insult for insult. On the contrary, repay evil with blessing. Because to this you were called so that you may inherit a blessing. Um, I didn't like this, kid, this guy who I played basketball against. I shared this several years ago when I lived in another town. And I played at the YMCA. I played at different places. And, and he was often there, but he was an arrogant jerk. He treated people like idiots and like he was above them. And when he guarded me, man, I wanted to humiliate him. And the more I played against him, the more I began to talk about him behind his back and, and to other people, like, what an idiot. Did you see what he did and this and that? And, so I, and I was justified because he was an arrogant jerk. But as time went on, my heart grew more and more hate toward him. And one day he showed up in church with his family. And uh, I was like, oh my gosh, how can I even look his way? Because I'm preaching up here. And, uh, and I was a youth pastor only at that time, but I was preaching that morning and he was there staring at me. And I felt like such a hypocrite that morning. Well, I determined after that morning that I would act as though I loved him. And I, he was my best friend. I would encourage him. I would bless the person who hates me in obedience to scripture. I would not curse them. I will not fight fire with fire. I will fight it with grace. And I did. And over the weeks, I discovered that, oh my gosh, my heart has changed. And then eventually he came to me and he wanted counsel from me, a pastor. And he sought me out. I thought he was going to come and rebuke me or something, but he came in and he said, hey, can we meet for lunch? I met with him. I was a little scared. And he was like, I need help, man. My marriage is hurting. And my heart went to him. This guy I hated, I was transformed because I obeyed scripture. I haven't always done it that way. But I saw firsthand uh, the grace of God in action. Now, so John reminds us in verse 14, we know that we've passed from death to life because we agape each other. Anyone who does not love remains in death. Anyone who does not agape they're walking in death. Even though they're Christians, they're walking in death, in, in failure, in defeat already. No matter what the truth is, they're walking in death. John states it even more strongly when someone chooses not to agape. Verse 15, anyone who hates his brother or sister is a murderer. And you know that no murderer has eternal life residing in him or her. Now, as Christians, we would never plan to murder anyone with poison or a knife or a gun. Wouldn't even think about it. But we readily cut people to shreds with our slanderous tongues. Or we find great delight in our hearts when we hear of the defeat or the demise of someone else with whom we disagree. Man, do we feel exonerated. Cain did. When he killed his brother, he felt great. When God questioned him, he said, am I my brother's keeper? He's not, he's not my problem. It serves them right for being idiots. Also, hate does not just have to be active, like we tend to think, like retaliation and slander, but it can be more passive, even more so. Indifference, apathy, neglect, unconcern, turning a cold shoulder toward others. Author Louis Giglio received some bad news 
in which he delighted because it was a guy who caused him many headaches as a pastor and leader. And when he heard the news about this guy's downfall, he felt completely vindicated. And what a relief that the truth finally came to light and he celebrated. And so he did so by getting out his phone. He drove into his driveway, stood at the top of his driveway one beautiful night and he texted this long text about this turn of events to one of his friends who was in the know and expecting, he said, I'm going to stand here, I'm going to stare at my phone and wait for him just to respond and read his text and whoa, it'll be great. And so he got, received a quick text back. It was just nine words. Nine words. Do, don't give the devil a seat at your table. Those nine words were life-changing for Louis Giglio. It cut to the core. It fell upon him, leading him to repentance. And later on, he even actually wrote a book, which is recently released, called Don't Give the Devil a Seat at Your Table. And when I was watching his podcast a couple of weeks ago on this, he used Psalm 23 as part of his message. And uh, there was this table set, and he sat down at this table. It was filled with wonderful food. Can you imagine a table right here? And so Louis uh, used Psalm 23 where, where God says, I set before you a table. You know, um, how's it go? Um, a little, little, little. Um, he prepares the table in the presence of my enemies. You know, in that part of Psalm 23. And God says, every morning or every day, here I am. I've got all of this for you. This is yours. This is my gift to you. Uh, a lot of mornings we say, hey, hey, God, hey, Jesus, how you doing? Um, nice. Oh, man, I love the spread, man. Whoa, you went all out today. Hey, I can't, I can't hang with you this morning uh, or today. You know, I'm kind of busy at the office, but hey, I got the coffee. I'll, here, thanks for the grape. I got to run, but maybe catch you some other time. And so we're like that with him, right? He's got all this spread for us, but we're in too big of a hurry to even fellowship with him. Or we sit down to him and we start you know, listening to him and we start communing. Oh man, God, Jesus, thank you for all this. This is awesome. Wow, thank you for this gift and what you have for me. But then, because we have a free will, we invite an unwelcome guest at the table who wants to show up. He prepares the table before me in the presence of my enemies. An enemy is Satan himself or one of his demons. And, uh, and oh, hey, how you doing, man? Yeah, good to see you. Oh, and then he starts whispering, hey, 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 dude, I got a question for you. I mean, don't mean to in interrupt, but um, how's that marriage of yours going? You know, I know you've been struggling and your wife's been nagging you a lot. And um, man, how, if, it, if it were up to me, dude, I, I wouldn't even, I wouldn't put up with it much longer. You know, but I mean, to each his own. If you want to, that's all right. But if you, if you ask me, you deserve a husband of the year award. And yeah, I know what you mean. Oh, yeah, yeah. Hey, Jesus. And or he said, hey, hey, wait, wait, I got something to do. What, what about that boss of yours? Is he, uh, has he ever given you a decent raise in the last several years? Or is he continually laying all this undue stress on you and all these demands? And, and um, yeah, he is. And again, dude, if it were me, I would hijack out of here. I, I'd, I'd go find another job. But, you know, you could do what you want. Um, I'm not telling you what to do, but if, if it were me. And so we begin to listen. We give a seat at the table to our enemy, the liar, to our soul. And we all do this. But Jesus is here, and he doesn't stop the conversation unless we fix our eyes on him and on the truth. 
and start listening to him and ignore the voice here, this enemy. We can't give the devil a seat at our table. Um, instead, we must fix our eyes on Jesus. In verse 14, we know that we have passed from death to life because we love each other. Anyone who does not love remains in death. We must reject the lie of hate, no matter what fashion or form it comes in. And we must agape, unconditional, unconditional love. The same love that Jesus loved us while he hung on the cross. That's the same love we extend to others. Not if they deserve it, but especially if they don't deserve it. What else does agape look like? It, it's sacrificial. Love sacrifices for others. This is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us. And we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters. If we love with God's agape love, then our lives will be marked by sacrificial action toward others. Anytime we hear that someone's in need, we'd be the first ones to step up and sacrifice our time and our energy. For example, many of you sent me cards or, or told me you're praying for me or asked me how I'm doing or, um, wow, just you, you've been a gift to me because of your love. You've gone out of your way to do that uh, for me these past weeks. And, and I'm still not out of the woods. I'm still dealing with stuff, but... Um, your prayers are, are coveted, and I thank you for um, doing that. Um, it's meant the world. Verse 17 says, If anyone has material possessions and sees a brother or sister in need, has no pity on them, how can the love of God be in that person? But agape love must be directed not just to family members or friends, they're easy to love. You know, I, I go to my grandkids' games and I, you know, I do this and this and, and we eat together as a family and that's great. We should do that, but we're to love our extended family. Um, we gave $10,000 recently to Omega House as a church and, and the women's shelter because of our blessing that we have here. Uh, because of your giving, generosity, we're able to give faith funds to ministries uh, we want to tithe, like, like you are called to tithe, we as a church want to tithe toward other ministries, and we've been able to do that, and even above and beyond. Second Peter says, show proper respect to everyone, love the family of believers, fear God and honor the emperor. Well, think about this in Peter's day. The emperor made any corrupt president we've ever had look like Mickey Mouse. The emperors were evil back in his day. Um, and, and yet, we're instructed by Peter to honor the emperor. Or if you are slaves and masters, you could, you could substitute employees and employers. Uh, employees, in reverent fear of God, submit yourselves to your employers, not only to those who are good and considerate, but also to those who are harsh. We will resemble Jesus who consistently sought out those who are hurting and lost. Now you might be thinking, how in the world should I love our enemy? How can I love my enemy when they're clearly wrong and they're corrupt and they're misleading? Don't we ever have the opportunity to confront someone and correct them, hold them accountable to the truth? And the answer is, yeah. That's biblical too. It says, dear friends, let us not love with words or tongue, but with actions and in truth. However, 
when we confront someone by speaking the truth, we're instructing the scripture to speak the truth in love. And we do this on a regular basis with our family members, with our kids, for example. When they misbehave, or grandkids, we speak the truth to them because we don't want them to continue in in their immaturity. Um, but nor do we delight in doling out punishment, nor do we delight in proving ourselves right over our kids. Aha! Kid, you're wrong. Listen to me. Ha! Rather, our primary goal is to help them succeed in life and help them mature and restore them into proper fellowship. We don't enjoy watching them crumble under the discipline or consequences of their misbehavior. We won't enjoy humiliating them or slandering them in front of our friends. But sadly, these are the kind of responses that we Christians do all the time when we confront others or disagree with others. Which leads to this last point. Agape love will spring from godly motives. Verse 19, this is how we know that we belong to the truth and how we set our hearts at rest in his presence. If our hearts condemn us, we know that God is greater than our hearts and he knows everything. Well, what in the world does that mean? It simply means that if our motivations are godly, namely that others would experience God's best for their lives when we confront them, and that they grow to maturity and understanding and grace, our hearts will be at rest. But if our motivations lack God's agape love, then we could display an appearance of godliness and holiness on the outside, but the scripture says God sees the true condition and mode of our heart as he saw in Cain, and he will not be fooled. That's why it says God is greater than our hearts, and he knows everything. However, in verse 21, dear friends, if our hearts do not condemn us, we have confidence before God and receive from him anything we ask because we keep his commands and do what pleases him. What commands please God? Well, Paul doesn't, or John doesn't beat around the bush. He says this is his command, to believe in the name of the Son, Jesus Christ, and to love one another, agape, as he commanded us. It's simple. If our motives are godly, we receive from God anything we ask because he knows that we will use his resources to bless others and not to try to vindicate ourselves, right? If we continue the lifestyle of apathy or unconcern or retaliation, then we should not expect God to answer our prayers, no matter how godly our truth is that we're seeking. In the same way, because without love we're nothing, right? Resounding gong. In the same way, we should never... We would never bless our 17-year-old with a brand new 2022 vehicle if they abuse their used vehicle that they've been driving. Never clean it, never change the oil. If they go out with their friends and get multiple traffic citations, speeding tickets. If they're unable to pay their bill because they don't get up in time and drive to work and they quit their job. And if they're just irresponsible, if they won't help out at home with the kids you know, driving their younger siblings around, no, I'm not going to do that. Or if they don't help out with, you know, mom and dad run, do chores for them using the vehicle, then why in the world would we give them a brand new car? It would only be, um, it would only be giving them a greater attitude of entitlement, self-centeredness, and immaturity. On the other hand, we're given this promise if we practice agape love. 
Not only will God hear our prayers, but verse 24, the one who keeps God's commands lives in him and he in them. God lives in them, in us, and we in him. What does that mean that God lives in us? Well, the moment we receive Christ, um, well, let's just put it this way. This is a work glove here, and work glove is meant it was created thick to do good work. Boom. All right, let's see what you can do, buddy. And it just sits there. All right, I see how you're playing. Pick up the water, dude. Let me see. I've paid good money for you. And it does nothing. And then you determine, well, this, this glove needs fellowship. It needs fellowship. And so you say, here, work together. Go. And nothing. Well, I know, they need a motivational speaker. Hey, preacher. And they motivate, motivate, motivate. Can you see the glove over there? I'm sorry. Um, and so they motivate. Come on, you can do it. Pick up the water. Let me see what you can do together. Nothing happens until, until we invite something to fill us. And that is the Holy Spirit of God, Jesus Christ. And then all of a sudden, Jesus walking through us, living through us, can do miracles, right? Through us. And, and so Jesus said, here's the blessing. If you love me, then I'm going to fill you with my spirit every day. And what I do, you will do because you're filled with my spirit and you'll accomplish great things. You'll bear much fruit. And so that's what we're told. The one who keeps God's commands lives in him and he in them. Um, Jesus lives in us, but then we live in him. What's the difference? The word in him, in Christ, or in the Lord, it's used 164 times in Pauline writings, in his letters. It's used way more than us uh, being filled with Jesus, it's we are in him. Before Christ in our lives, we were born in sin and we lived in sin, controlled by sin. But when we met Christ, we allowed him to control us. That's what it means for him to be, uh, we, us to be in him. If anyone is in, in Christ, he's a new creation. He became sin for us though, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. There's no condemnation for those who are in Christ. Nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ. We're all one in Christ. We're clothed in Christ. We're hidden in Christ. We've been given every spiritual blessing in Christ, which means he protects us. He provides for us. Uh, His presence is with us and his power is with us. We're in Christ. Living in Christ is much more than tools in a toolbox or clothes in a closet. Being in Christ is organic. It's like this arm is in the body or a branch is in the trunk. And when it's organically connected to, then it bears much fruit. I am the vine, you are the branches. If a man remains in me and I in him, he will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. The branch, when it's disconnected from the tree, cannot bear fruit. The, the arm disconnected to the body will lie on the floor like that glove. And apart from Christ, we can do nothing. We're in Christ. So, looking for love in all the wrong places. How do we give up our lousy counterfeits to get the real, real deal? The agape love. We must remember that this agape love comes only from God. It rejects hate, whether it's be passive or active hate. It it sacrifices for others, and it springs from godly motives. Uh, godly motives. Um, God sees our heart. 